0: In the last episode of this podcast, we had the case against Ulysses. This episode of the podcast is the case for Ulysses. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are slow walking to Dante's Masterwork Comedy, and we have been sitting with Ulysses in the 8th circle of hell in the 8th of the evil pouches that make up that circle of fraud for a very long time and we're about to take our leave of ulysses but not before one more episode last time we had the case against ulysses i built a case for exactly why he's in hell and why we shouldn't trust a word that he says in this episode of the podcast i'm going to do the exact opposite i'm going to talk about why there is a case for Ulysses. In the modern world, most critics have rejected the romantic reading of Ulysses, and all critics are at great pains to tell us, hey, Ulysses is damned. Well, hey, we all know it. And yet, he stands as one of the greatest sinners of hell. So we want to talk that through. And why is that the case? And why does Ulysses stand so far out from Inferno? Before we get there, Let's read the passage one more time. One last time. Canto 26 of Inferno. Lines 85 through 142. My translation, you can find it on my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com. You can read along. You can drop a comment. Otherwise, one last time. Ulysses. The bigger horn of the ancient flame began to quiver, murmuring as if it were affected by the wind, then shimmering its tip this way and that as if it itself were a tongue that could speak, it brought out its voice and said, When I left Circe, who'd kept me for more than a year at a spot not far from Gaeta, before Aeneas named it that, neither any affection for my son, nor any reverence toward my old father, nor the debt of love I owed to Penelope, which would have pleased her— could vanquish the ardor inside me that wanted to experience the wide world, including all the vices and heroics of humanity. So I set up on the deep open sea with only one ship and just such few companions who had not abandoned me. I saw one coast, then another, all the way out to Spain, even as far as Morocco, as well as the islands of Sardinia and the other islands that bathe in that sea. I and my companions had gotten old and slow when we made it to the narrow strait where Hercules had marked off the warning limits beyond which men shouldn't venture. Off the starboard side, I took my leave of Seville, and off the port, I'd already taken my leave of Ceuta. Oh, boy! Brothers, I said, who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the west, to this last little bit of readiness that still hangs on in our senses, do not deny yourselves the experience on beyond the sun of an unpeopled world. Give full credit to your origins. You were not created to live like beasts, but to live in the search for virtue and knowledge. I'd made my companions so impassioned with my little speech for the journey ahead. I could hardly have held them back from it. We set our stern toward the sunrise and turned our oars into wings for Our mad flight always gaining our way on the port side. All the stars that surround the Antipodes already glimmered in the night. While our own from back home were so low, they didn't even rise above the ocean's floor. Five times we had seen the light beneath the moon wax and wane since we'd started on this high pass. When a mountain rose up, still dim in the distance it seemed to me i'd never seen any taller we let out cries of joy although they soon morphed into grief for a whirlwind came out of that new land and struck the prow of the ship three times it spun the ship around in all that water at the fourth our stern reared up to a height and the prow went plunging down as it Pleased another until the sea shut tight over us. So, as I said, this episode is all about the case for Ulysses. Why does his speech? give me and I hope you goosebumps why is it so wild in the text why does the canto end as it does why does Ulysses get the last words in this canto what is going on here and why has Ulysses caught the imagination of so many critics until this is the most remarked upon passage in all of Dante's comedy well let's talk it through First, his monologue, his speech must have an interpretation. You will notice how airtight it is. Where is the pilgrim's reaction? When Francesca does this, the pilgrim faints. When Nicholas III does this with the simoniacs, the pilgrim grows in wrath. Where are the reactions from the pilgrim in this? Where's Virgil's reaction? Where's Anybody's reactions where where are they? Back with Farinata we could gauge the pilgrim. We could even gauge Virgil standing way back behind Farinata and Cavalcanti. Here we stand hearing it as the pilgrim did and we are given no other clues or cues except those that occur inside the speech. So the speech itself is so tight that in order to make any sense of it, we have to get inside of it. That's why it was so hard two episodes ago to do that podcast in which I tried to talk about the poetry of Ulysses' monologue without talking about any interpretation, because frankly, the whole thing turns on interpretation, which means it is a glorious piece of poetry, a piece of poetry in which I'm not being winked at, in which I'm not being signaled, in which, in fact, I have to Dig into it to figure out what it's all about. He's a Greek. (laughs) Remember in the last episode of this podcast, in the case against Ulysses, I said one of the pieces against him is that he's a Greek and those dastardly Greeks did the Trojans in and Virgil and all that stuff. Well, after all, Ulysses is a Greek. If you remember back to Limbo, there were all those Greek philosophers who Dante couldn't know. Dante knows there's a great Deal of learning, lying back with the Greeks. There is a ton of knowledge that he knows about secondhand, but he doesn't know the actual Greeks themselves, and he doesn't speak Greek to know the philosophy, and it's not even available to him anyway. So here he is caught, knowing pieces of Greek philosophy, but not the whole thing. And so we saw in Limbo that admiration for the Greeks I didn't know, the ones standing down there on the emerald grass who the pilgrim wishes he'd known. I mean, he he blithely lists them off, but as we talked about, many of them he couldn't know who what they wrote, what they said, who really who they were. He only knew them second handedly, and there's a kind of yearning for them. There must surely still be that kind of yearning for Ulysses, because Dante can't get at the primary Homeric text. He can only get at Ulysses through people who talk through the Homeric text, or who tell alternate stories of Ulysses. I would say the case for Ulysses is there is a desire here, and we see it in the pilgrim. Early on, we see him saying how much he desires to meet Ulysses, leaning out until he almost falls into the pit. There has got to be so much yearning for this figure on the part of not only the pilgrim, but the poet standing behind him. The third point in the case for Ulysses is the sheer originality of this story. Listen this story doesn't come from anywhere except Dante's imagination. Yes, of course. It has bits of Ovid. It has bits of Horace and Virgil and Lucan and Statius. We've talked about this in the last two episodes of this podcast, but the overall arc of this story is Dante's. No one else tells this. No one else (laughs) has Ulysses sail out across the open Atlantic and come upon Mount Purgatory and go down in a whirlpool. This is dante's vision if you remember earlier in this canto dante said he had to figure out how to temper his genius with virtue or how to rein in his talent with virtue this speech is that it is gorgeous poetic craft unbelievable talent all being wrapped around pieces from the writers Dante Knows, Ovid Horace, Virgil, Lucan, Statius, and yet at the same time fully original and all completely held in control. Unlike those episodes with the metamorphosizing thieves, which seem to me constantly on the verge of falling apart, this monologue from Ulysses is original, controlled, it is never on the verge of falling apart. No wonder Ulysses stands out from the poem. Our fourth point in the case for Ulysses lies in his own phraseology. He says, we set our stern toward the sunrise and turned our oars into wings for our mad flight. Fole volo. It's that word Folly, our folly flight, our folly filled flight, our flight of folly, folly. It's so crucial to getting this and getting why there is a case for Ulysses because we're going to look at the other times this word folly has occurred. It's occurred four times before us in Inferno, and it lies ahead of us once. Let's look at these four well, four times in Inferno and the fifth time ahead of us. So way back in Canto 2, I'm going to read them to you. Way back in Canto 2, when Dante is first saved by Virgil, Dante does his big bit of, why why me? Who am I to go on a journey across the known universe? Who am I to make this? Why should I go there? And I'm at Canto 2 of Inferno, and I'm at line 31. Why should I go? Who allows it? I'm not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. Neither I nor any other think me fit for this. And so if I commit myself to come along, I fear it may be folly. Foley. in the case of many translations they translate it madness and i translate this folle volo as mad flight that passage when dante first expresses his fear look I, wh- who am I? I i've written a couple things who am i to set out on this journey and who am i as a poet to write this piece it, it could be just sheer craziness sheer Foley mad overreach the term occurs again in canto 8 I'm at line 89 of Canto 8. We are standing in front of the walls of Dis. If you recall, there is an idea that Canto 8 restarts the poem and that we restart the poem a bit in a different way, slow down the pace of racking through the seven deadly sins, and the poem begins to change in fundamental ways. And Virgil and Dante are standing in front of the walls of Dis, and there are all these fallen angels blocking the path through the gates of Dis on toward the heretics and Farinata and Lower Hell. At first, they seem to block them, and then they call Virgil forward. And they say, these angels, the fallen angels, to Virgil, you come alone. Let him, that is the pilgrim, be gone, who has so boldly made his way into this kingdom. Let him retrace his foley path by himself. Let him retrace his mad path, his reckless path path, his crazy path. Let him take it by himself. This is clearly a reference to the journey. This is clearly yet another node of the pilgrim and perhaps the poet saying oh, it's just madness. I mean, this whole journey is madness. And even the fallen angels recognize it as insane to go walking across the known universe. The term occurs again in Canto 12, starting at a about, uh, I'm going to start about line 46 of Canto 12. We are here coming down the scree-filled slope past the Minotaur and down toward those who have been violent against uh, the other humans and violence against the property of other humans. We have the grand plunderers uh, like Attila and we have great murderers all the way down to local highway robbers and others. So we have all these characters characters who, of course, we're going to meet in the River of Blood. And Virgil introduces it. He says, fix your eyes below, for we draw near the River of Blood that skulls those who by violence do injury to others. And then the poet seems to step out and say, oh, blind avarice and folly wrath. Foolish wrath, folly wrath, insane wrath. Notice that Every time this term is used, it's about stepping over a boundary, folly. The angels, the fallen angels are saying, what kind of mad folly-filled path is this this pilgrim is on? Dante himself says it may just be folly. This is stepping over the boundary of pure humanness. And then we get the term again. We get it in Canto 19 at lines 85 and following. This is Nicholas the 3rd, Pope Nicholas 3rd upside down in his hole amongst the simoniacs in the evil pouch of fraud and he's making these predictions about Clement the 5th is going to end up in hell on top of him. Etcetera. And then he, he gives this weird uh, prophecy that we talked about a lot. A new Jason shall he be, the one on whom we read in Maccabees, and even as the king indulged Jason, so the king of France shall deal with him. And he ends with this kind of wildly apocalyptic reference, Nicholas does. And the pilgrim then says, I do not know if I was too fully When I answered him in just this strain, please tell me how much treasure did our Lord insist on from St. Peter before he gave the keys into his kingdom? I don't know if I was troppo folle, too foolish. Listen, here I am castigating a pope. Am I crazy? Have I overstepped every possible boundary? Have I made it so that that no one will pay any attention to me because I'm overstepping the boundaries. And then one last passage. Sorry to read so many, but one last passage far ahead of us. I'm in Paradiso. I'm at Canto 27, and I'm going to start at line, oh, about 77. Dante and Beatrice are way up in the heavens. And she calls him to look back down on the tiny earth, way, way below them. She says, Beatrice says, cast your sight below and see how wide a circle you have traveled. Since the last time I looked down, the pilgrim says, I saw I had traversed all of the arc from the midpoint of the first climb to its end, so that on the one side... I could see the mad passageway of Ulysses and on the other, nearly to the shore where Europa had made sweet burden of herself. This is a complicated passage. We'll talk much more about it when we get to Paradiso. But notice when Dante looks down on the earth, he sees the mad passage of Ulysses, that is to Mount Purgatory all the way to the edge of the Mediterranean and the Greek world. In other words, he sees the globe. So clear up in Paradiso, Ulysses is referenced again in his mad folly. There is clearly a way in which Ulysses and Dante are linked. After all, Dante is going to purgatory in the flesh as Ulysses was, and Dante's going to get there. And beyond that, Dante's going to go up into heaven in the flesh. You know what is else strange about this passage and the linking of Ulysses and Dante? Because they're on a very similar journey. They're on a journey of mad overreach. You know what else is strange is that opening metaphor of Elisha and Elijah. Remember, Elisha is watching Elijah go up in the chariot until he's this little flame way up in the sky. And I told you that Elisha was the prophet who took over from Elijah You do realize that Dante is Elisha to Ulysses Elijah. Ulysses is the first one to have made this journey. Dante's making it differently and under a divine aegis. But at the same time, there is a way that Dante is the heir of Ulysses' journey. It tells us that in that opening imagery. And suddenly you have in your mind Ulysses as Elijah. And Dante as Elisha. But Ulysses as Elijah, that must surely put a great deal of stress on Ulysses, to say the least. It's got to make him a very weighty figure in terms of how the poetics get worked out. Dante is so attracted by this figure. I mean, listen, he almost falls in, right, into this pit. And if it were not, and this is what's so wild, right, if it were not for the harrowing of hell... Dante the pilgrim would have fallen in because he leaned so far into the pit, he says, had I not grabbed onto a crag. Well, we know that hell, the crags of hell, the ruins of hell are part of the harrowing when the earthquake shook hell. There is a way in which this journey and even the safeguarding of the pilgrim is part of a providential design to send him on the same journey that Ulysses here takes, but this time under a divine aegis. I can can't say it better than Jorge Borges does. Borges says uh, this bit about Dante in his work Seven Nights, a series of lectures he gave, which were translated by Elliot Weinberg and published in English in 1984. Let me read you the passage from Borges in his Seven Nights lectures about Dante. To what do we owe the tragic weight of the Ulysses episode? I think there is one explanation, Borges says, the only valid one, and that is that Dante felt in some way that he was Ulysses. I don't know if he felt it in a conscious way. It doesn't matter. In some terset of the Commedia, he says that no one is permitted to know the judgments of Providence. <laughs> Indeed, in several places. We cannot anticipate them. No one can know who will be saved and condemned. But Dante has dared Through poetry, to do precisely this. He shows us the condemned and the chosen. He must have known that doing so courted danger. He could not ignore that he was anticipating the indecipherable providence of God. For this reason, the character of Ulysses has such force because Ulysses is a mirror of Dante because Dante felt that perhaps he too deserved this punishment. Writing this poem, whether for good or ill, he was infringing on the mysterious laws of the night, of God, and of divinity. I couldn't say it better than that. That is exactly the linking of Dante and Ulysses, the overstep, the folly, the whole regard for this word folae, which comes up so loudly in the Ulysses passage. Dante may damn Ulysses, but we, his descendants, and I mean Ulysses' descendants, we can still celebrate him. He wants essentially what we want to know what can't be known to put it in modern terms ulysses wants to peer into dark matter he wants to see the black hole at the center of the milky way he wants to harness quantum entanglement or as einstein put it spooky action at a distance these things may destroy us harnessing quantum entanglement may well lead to our own destruction but we're going to do it you know we are you know that we are dead set on peering into dark matter and discovering what it is it itself may undo us and yet we are intent on it we are the children of Ulysses we can only stare at this speech and think my god this is me. This is us. This is our attempt at constantly to push the boundaries, to find out what we don't know. This is the modern world. And Ulysses stands here in hell giving this speech, which Dante fully condemns. It is in hell. And yet he's voicing the modern world. And may I also say he's voicing our fears because (laughs) exploring black holes, peering into dark matter and harnessing quantum entanglement may be the whirlwind that comes out of that new land and destroys us too. Like Ulysses, we can't help ourselves because indeed, this speech shows us we are Ulysses' children. We are the people that Dante created in this voice, the descendants of the one who transversed the boundaries. Our sixth point is that Ulysses does exhort his men... To a higher calling, we may quibble with his speech, O brothers, who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the west. This last little bit of readiness that still hangs on our senses, do not deny yourselves the experience on beyond the sun of an unpeopled world. Give full credit to your origins; you were not created to live like beasts, but to live in the search of virtue and knowledge. I mean, he is calling them to their better selves, their greater selves, and we may quibble about that, but he is exhorting them to a higher calling, (laughs) as does Dante. That's what the comedy's doing. Dante is calling you to a higher calling, to a better understanding of the universe, a better understanding of God, a better understanding of the human condition. Ulysses may be using high rhetoric to spur his men on, But so is Dante to spur his readers on. And believe me, especially as we approach the divine in Paradiso, the language is going to loft higher than ever even Ulysses dares. Dante is going to start creating words for things that don't have words. His neologisms, his new words are going to proliferate. He's going to start creating language from scratch, to explain, to describe that which escapes language. Ulysses exhorts to a higher calling, so does Dante. And finally, our last bit is that, as I said, this passage and this speech brings the comedy to a dead halt. In fact, the opening of the next canto is a little bit weird. It's a little rough. Ulysses is basically just going to float away along with Diomedes. They're going to float away and it's, it's a little rough start. We have to kind of restart the comedy and restart the narrative action because the action of our pilgrim has been destroyed by this speech. The pilgrim's walk across the known universe is at a dead halt at the end of this speech. And there is no forward momentum outside of Ulysses. He is such a powerful figure that we're actually going to need a second figure in this eighth pouch to reveal the full measure of the sin punished here. Because if it were just left to Ulysses, We may not get what this pouch is about. It is about using language in a distinctly manipulative and self-serving way. But we may not get that just from Ulysses. We're going to get that because in Canto 27, we're going to get someone who spells it directly out for us. And we're going to have no questions about then who is punished here in the eighth of the evil pouch. Again, Ulysses is so overwhelming, so dynamic, so giant that Dante knows he needs a second figure to temper this absolutely insane, gorgeous poetry that damns the coming world, but also predicts the likes of you and me. After all, what are we doing on this podcast, Walking with Dante? We're walking where it's crazy to walk. We're walking across Dante's masterwork, comedy. We're daring the limits of interpretation. We're daring what we do. We're doing what Ulysses did. We're sailing off into this poetry as if we know (laughs) what we're doing, when at the same time, we just keep thinking, no, 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 no. I mean, after all, listen. I am not a dentista. Who am I to do this podcast? I am Ulysses, sailing off into a world where I actually don't have any platform to speak from other than a lifetime spent thinking about the comedy. Uh, I hope you will come back for more. We got to get on to the 27th, can't Yet another figure in this eighth pouch. Please rate this podcast. Please drop a comment if you can. And otherwise, I can't promise you anything as insane as Ulysses in the cantos ahead, but I can guarantee you we'll have a great time exploring the uncharted waters of Dante's Foley. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.